Hi, I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to another episode of The Postscript, Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series devoted to interviewing pastors and professors from LFBI and across the Living Faith Fellowship. Uh, For those of you who are regular listeners, you're familiar with our uh, show that we offer every other week called The PS Plus. And on that show, uh, we have uh, young men in the Bible Institute uh, address theological issues, uh, important ones, and they do it over a series format. These are usually 10 to 15 minute episodes. And, uh, and people really enjoy these and, and, and they're fun. It's like a mini series that we do uh, every other week. And, and so if you're familiar with that show, uh, you may know that not too long ago, uh, Van Sneed, one of our students in the school, uh, did a series of episodes dealing with dispensational theology and he did a phenomenal job. And so this week we're gonna do something a little bit different. We decided to mash up all of those episodes together and offer them in one single episode that allows you to listen to all of that content back to back versus skimming through the episodes and trying to piece everything together. This will give you an opportunity to hear all that content in one take. And so this will be a super episode, if you will, uh, that we're going to give you this week. And one of the things you'll notice about this long episode is that Van is not only going to teach us about dispensational theology, but he's also going to teach us other forms of theology, other forms of interpretation uh, that exist within Christianity. And he is going to compare and contrast dispensational theology to those things. And hopefully on the other side of the episode, you'll understand why dispensational theology is so important to us uh, at the Living Faith Bible Institute and to all those people who study God's word. And so with all that, we really hope that you enjoy the episode and that it's a blessing to you. Welcome to the PS Plus, a Living Faith Bible Institute podcast that serves as a companion to another called The Postscript. Now on that podcast, pastor and host Brandon Briscoe will speak with other pastors and professors from the Living Faith Bible Institute on a myriad of topics. On episodes 53, 55, and 56, Pastor Brandon is speaking with Pastor Alan Shelby of Harvest Baptist Church on the charismatic movement and charismatic theology. And that's exactly where we're going to continue our discussion today. So, Let's do this thing. Now, in our last episode, we took a look at an example of a charismatic hermeneutic by way of the International House of Prayer. We essentially looked at how they interpret scripture. And what we found is that we actually didn't agree with a lot of it. I thought it would be only fair if we actually took a look at what we would agree with. And we can't talk about interpreting scripture without talking about dispensationalism. Now, there may be some of you that are familiar with the term dispensationalism and some of you that aren't, but I assure you, it's not a very hard concept to grasp. And we're going to take a look at some of the main points about dispensationalism today. Now, in light of that, there's a particular scripture that would be very, very helpful for us to look at, and that's 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So when we look at this verse, we have a couple of things that become apparent. First is that the Bible requires study to properly understand. Second is that the Bible needs to be rightly divided. There are divisions in your Bible, and if we don't properly recognize these divisions and interpret Scripture in light of these divisions, we will run into errors. 
As a matter of fact, a lot of heresy that we find in heretical movements are sourced out of people that are making wrong divisions in your Bible. So this is an incredibly important concept. Now, for some of you, again, this may be new and you may be thinking, I don't know about divisions in my Bible. Well, open up your Bible and I promise you there are at least two. You got an Old Testament and you got a New Testament. So even though you may be new to dispensationalism, you should be familiar with the idea of there being different divisions in your Bible. Now, in order to understand dispensationalism, we need to define it in a couple of different ways. So dispensationalism is really nothing more than a systematic method by which the Bible can be interpreted based on clearly observed patterns in Scripture. Another key factor of dispensationalism is that it's going to acknowledge that God has the same eternal plan, but that enacts itself in different ways for different people in different parts of history. Now, along with the idea of dispensationalism, we have to define actually what a dispensation is. And there's a couple of definitions that we could use, and we're going to go with two. The first is this, a period of time in which a designated steward has a responsibility in the administration of God's kingdom. And a second definition could be this, a distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purpose. Now, the word dispensation can be found in four places in your Bible. 1 Corinthians 9.17, Ephesians 1.10, Ephesians 3.2, and Colossians 1.25. Now, for the sake of time, we won't be able to read all of these passages, but I'd encourage you to check them out when you have some time, and I think they'll shed a lot of light on this conversation we're having about dispensationalism. Now, as it relates to dispensationalism, this system of interpreting your Bible, there are a couple of key distinctives that we want to keep in our minds. The first is that dispensationalism makes a distinction between the nation of Israel, Gentiles, and the church of God as three separate people groups. The second is that dispensationalism leads you to interpret your Bible literally. And you can do this as long as your Bible tells you to. There are a couple of passages where the Bible clearly says, hey, yo, don't interpret this literally. But outside of that, you interpret it literally. The third is an understanding of God's purpose and really the Bible's purpose in glorifying himself. Charles Ryrie in his book Dispensationalism writes, To the normative dispensationalist, the soteriological or saving program of God is not the only program, but one of the means God is using in the total program of glorifying himself. Now, one of the things that we talked about is that we see a clear pattern in Scripture, and that's one of the kind of the key tenets of dispensationalism. So let's actually talk about that pattern. And in order to do that, we need to take a look at Luke chapter 16. Now, in this passage, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and we'll pick it up in verse 1. And he said also unto his disciples, there was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, how is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. So looking at this passage, we should know a couple of things. The first is the word stewardship actually comes from a Greek word, a koinomia, which is also translated dispensation. The second is that there's actually a structure that we see here in this passage that is also going to be a structure that we're going to see in every dispensation, every period of time in which God's plan is manifesting in different ways for different people. So the structure is simply this. First, there is a steward who is given a specific task to accomplish by God. The second is that there is actually a failure of that steward to accomplish the task. The third is that the steward is held accountable for that failure and there's a judgment that follows. 
Lastly, a new steward is designated with the task of fulfilling God's purpose. Now, when it comes to how we rightly divide the word of truth and how we observe scripture, we see seven dispensations that kind of come to the forefront. And this is what's known as kind of classic dispensationalism, these seven distinguishable economies where God's plan and purpose is being enacted. So the first dispensation is the dispensation of innocence. And we find this in Genesis chapter one through three. The second is the dispensation of conscience. And we find this in Genesis chapter four through eight. The third is the dispensation of human government, and we find this in Genesis chapters 9 through 11. The fourth is the dispensation of the patriarchs, and we find this in Genesis chapter 12 through Exodus chapter 18. Now, the fifth is the dispensation of the law, and we find this from Exodus 19 to the death of Christ. The sixth is the dispensation of grace, and we find this from the death of Christ to the second coming of Christ. And the last, the seventh dispensation, is the dispensation of the millennium, which is found in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 15. Now, in every single one of these dispensations, we're going to see the same pattern that we saw in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Now, for the sake of time, let's just take a look at one dispensation to see if we can identify this pattern. So, in the first dispensation, the dispensation of innocence, the steward is pretty easy to identify because there's only like one dude on the planet. It's Adam, y'all. Spoiler alert, Adam is the steward of the dispensation of innocence. Now, along with Adam being the steward, he's given a particular task to be fulfilled. Now, in Genesis 1.28, the commandment comes to be fruitful and multiply. Now, in Genesis 2, verses 16 through 17, God gives parameters around fulfilling the mission. Adam can have any tree of the garden to eat except one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, of course, the story of Adam and Eve is very familiar to most people. There is a failure on Adam's part in that both he and Eve eat of the tree that they are not supposed to. Later in Genesis chapter 3, there is, of course, a judgment both on Adam and Eve. And in addition, they are removed from the garden. So clearly we can see that Adam, as a steward, was given a particular task He was given parameters around accomplishing that task, but he failed in the administration of what God had given him. He was judged and ultimately removed. God's grace is always given when faith in God's word is displayed. And Hebrews 11 does a great job at pointing this out. No matter the dispensation, grace through faith is the constant that runs through all of these. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, it says, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. Now, Abel was not in the dispensation of innocence. Abel was in the dispensation of conscience. In verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Now, Noah was not in the dispensation of conscience. He was in the dispensation of human government. In verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whither he went. Now, Abraham was not in the dispensation of human government. He was in the dispensation of the patriarchs. So even though these men were in different dispensations and given different instructions, they were still responding in faith to what God's word had said. 
Now, regarding the dispensation of innocence, we find this in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. And there's a lot that happens here, you know, like the creation of the cosmos and all the stuff that exists in it. There's a whole bunch that goes on in these chapters. But in regards to the structure of a dispensation, we find our first steward in Adam. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And we talked about this a little bit in jest last time, but there literally is no other dude but Adam. He is definitely going to be our steward. And like any steward, he's given a task simply to be fruitful and multiply. And we find this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And God blessed them and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. In addition to this task that Adam is given, he's also given parameters to accomplish it and the consequences of his disobedience. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day thou shalt eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Regarding the commandments that God has given throughout Scripture, these dudes have it pretty easy. Adam and Eve have a really simple commandment. You can eat these things, don't eat this thing. And of course, we know how the story goes. We see the failure of the steward in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. So this, of course, is a tragedy. And really, we've been feeling the effects of this ever since. Now, because the steward has failed, there is a judgment that takes place. And we find that judgment in Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every which way to keep the way of the tree of life. So with that, we find the ending of the dispensation of innocence and a beginning of a brand new dispensation, the dispensation of conscience. We're going to find this located in Genesis chapter 4 through about chapter 8 verse 14. So as we begin to look at this dispensation, we can identify the chief stewards as Adam's descendants. So we're going to see this primarily in the persons of both Cain and Abel. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says this, And Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now, before we continue on and identify the specific task that was given, it's important that we get a little bit more backstory. And we're in luck because if we just keep reading on in the passage, we'll get it. So in verse 3, it says this, And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the first things of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect, and Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? So here in verse 7, we find the task of the steward. If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. So we see in this passage that God has simply noticed 
that Cain has a pouty face and has just said, yo, man, do well. This is a very, very clear command that's given by God, and it is disobeyed right quick. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, it says, And Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. So now we're not clear as far as how much time passed, but what we know is that God had a path for Cain to follow, and he just decided not to take it at all. Think about that for a second. The very first family on the planet Earth in Cain and Abel, and a murder takes place. Now, in addition to seeing this failure for Cain and Abel, we also see this failure for humanity as a whole. And if we continue reading on in Genesis, when we get to chapter 6, we'll find that mankind as a whole is not following after God. They're not doing good at all. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6 says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. So not only do we see that Cain kills his brother Abel, but in the process of time as mankind continues to reproduce, it's nothing but a whole bunch of evil folks doing evil things all the time. Now, there is a judgment that we see both to Cain and later to mankind as a whole. Take a look at verse 11 of Genesis chapter 4. God speaking to Cain says, And now art thou cursed from the earth which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt that be in the earth. And we also see later on, again in alignment with Genesis chapter 6, a judgment for mankind as a whole. Genesis chapter 6, verse 7, it says, And the Lord God said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Now we know this to be the flood in the Bible, the one that annihilates all of mankind and hits a reset button on how the human race is going to go. And this is also where we're introduced to Noah in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So this is something interesting about this dispensation. It's something that we'll find with a lot of dispensations. There's almost like a bleeding between one dispensation and the next dispensation. So even though Noah is alive in the dispensation of conscience, he's actually, as we'll see next time, a steward of the dispensation of human government. So here's what I find very interesting about the dispensation of innocence and conscience. In the former, Adam and Eve were dropped into a perfect environment. Literally everything was perfect, and yet they still were drawn into sin. In the latter dispensation, Cain had a conversation with God, and God told him what the answer is. If you want to be accepted, just do good. And Cain still manages to murder his brother. And as we're observing these patterns in scripture, one of the things that we find and one of the things that scripture very much attests to is that mankind is simply not good. We have no ability to be good in and of ourselves, and we will always find ourselves going down the wrong road. But in that, I think one thing that we can see is just how desperately we need God to intervene on our behalf because without him, we are lost. And that's why I am so grateful that in the dispensation of grace, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross, to live a life of perfection that we could never live, 
and pay a penalty that we could never afford. So where we left off last time was with a judgment. And that, of course, is one of the patterns that we see in dispensationalism. There is a judgment and then a new steward is put in place. Well, the judgment last time was a global flood. And there's only one family that was perfect in their generations, that of Noah. Noah is also the chief steward of our first dispensation we're taking a look at today, the third overall, the dispensation of human government. Now, the source for this information, the scriptural basis for this particular dispensation is found in Genesis chapter 9 through 11. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, we find both the identification of the chief steward of this dispensation of human government as well as the task that is given to the steward. Genesis chapter 9, verse 1 says this, And God blessed Noah and his sons, the steward, and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Again, we see both that Noah is the steward and the commission that he's given, the task that he's given, is to be fruitful and multiply, the same commission that Adam was given. So this is something that's really interesting to think about. Noah, as an individual, has found grace in the eyes of the Lord. There's literally a world of wickedness, and yet Noah, Scripture records, is perfect in his generations and is saved by God. One of the things that we mentioned in a previous episode of the PS Plus is that even though God gives different instructions to different group of people throughout Scripture, the same method of salvation is present every single time, grace through faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says, By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which... He condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. So even though the dispensations are different, the method of salvation is the same, grace through faith. So unfortunately, by now, we should know what's going to happen at some point next, which is that the task that is given to the steward is not accomplished. There is a failure. Now, in this case, we see something similar to the dispensation of conscience. There's a failure on Noah's part, an individual, but also a failure on a larger group as a whole. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 20 through 21, it says, And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. So I want you to think about this for a second, because Noah is a great example to us of a man of faith. But like all of us, Noah is a man. And here we see really a pretty big failure. This is someone who was supposed to be fruitful, to multiply, and essentially to rule over the earth. And yet he disqualifies himself because of his behavior. He becomes drunken. Now, later on in Genesis, we're going to see a failure of humanity as a whole. Again, this is the dispensation of human government. And so we're given humans a chance to rule as a whole governmentally. And we're going to see that We can't even do that well. In Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, it says this, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the earth. Now, I want you to notice 
the logic of these people. They want to build a tower that reaches to heaven. They don't want to get to God on God's terms. They want to get to God on their own terms. They also want to make a name for themselves. And lastly, they don't want to do what the commandment for this dispensation is to do, which is to be fruitful, multiply, and scatter themselves upon the earth. This is, of course, the Tower of Babel, and those that are even vaguely familiar with the Bible knows how this story ends. There is a judgment in that God confuses man's languages and gets exactly what he wants, the scattering of humanity across the earth. In Genesis chapter 11, verses 5 through 9, it says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence and upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of the earth. So this concludes the dispensation of human government, and we move on into the dispensation of the patriarchs. Now the location of this dispensation can be found from Genesis 12 all the way to Exodus chapter 18. So we're going to start moving here pretty quickly. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. So here we find the chief steward in Abram. And Abram, or Abraham as he will later be called, is a huge deal in your Bible. If you're not familiar with him, he's dope. I mean, that's the only way to put it. He's a dope dude. Now, like all of the stewards, they're given a particular task, and Abraham is as well. It is to take the promised land. We find this in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 7. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed." So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan. And into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land into the place of Sichem unto the plain of Moreh. And the Canaanite was then in the land, and the Lord appeared unto Abraham and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land, and there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. So think about how awesome this is. God has given Abraham a specific set of instructions, and he's obedient. He gets up, he takes all his substance, and he goes where God has told him to go. Now, although Abram is obedient for a time, there is eventually a failure, and we find this in Genesis chapter 12. In verse 10, it says, And there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was grievous in the land. 
Now, if you study Egypt in your Bible, what you find is that it is a picture of the world. Now, when we say picture, what we mean is that Egypt is consistently throughout Scripture associated with the world and worldly values, the exact same things that we as Christians should not be for. So even though God has given specific instructions to go into the land of Canaan, and Abram does for a time, he finds himself going down into Egypt to try and find his provision. Now, we're also going to see a failure in Abraham's descendants that we find very much later in the book of Genesis in chapter 46. In verses 6 and 7, it says, And they took their cattle and their goods, which they had gotten in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his seed with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his seed brought he with him into Egypt. Now, there's a lot of backstory here that we don't have time to get into. I know it's it's like we should, but these podcasts are super short, so just run with me here. This is great homework for you guys. It's, it's, it's stellar reading, I promise you. But suffice it to say, Abraham's descendants know what they are supposed to do. They are supposed to be living in the land of Canaan, the land that God wants to give to them. Now, of course, we know in the sequence of events, this pattern of dispensationalism, we're going to see a judgment. And this we find in Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 14. Now, there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us and so get them up out of the land. Therefore did they set over them taskmasters to afflict them with burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. So here at the end of this dispensation, we find that this judgment has resulted in bondage for this nation, the nation of Israel. But God in his kindness is going to deliver them. Exodus chapter 2 verses 23, it says, And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage and they cried and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. So we're going to jump right in by looking at the fifth dispensation, the dispensation of the law. And in order to do that, we're going to take a look at Exodus chapter 19. In verses 3 through 8, we're going to both identify the steward as well as the task that's been given to the steward. So let's go ahead and just read this passage as a whole. Beginning in verse 3, it says, And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, And tell the children of Israel, ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me as a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So here we see very clearly that 
Moses is our steward and gets instructed to speak very specific words unto the children of Israel. And they respond in verse 7. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. So in this passage, we see that while the steward is Moses, it's also the nation of Israel as well, because God is giving specific instructions to Moses to give to the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel says, yes, we will do what you have commanded us. Now, because we've been taking a look at dispensationalism for the past few episodes, we know what's going to happen next. There will be a failure of the steward. And in this case, it's going to happen ridiculously quick. Israel is going to fail. In Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 6, we read this. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings which were in their ears, and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand, and fashioned it with a graving tool, after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation, and said, Tomorrow is a feast of the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Now, if that wasn't enough, we're going to continue to see failure after failure after failure in the nation of Israel's history. And 2 Kings chapter 17 does a really great job of, of, of summing it all up. In verse 7, it says this, for so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, which had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the statues of the heathen which the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel which they had made. And the children of Israel did secretly those things that were not right against the Lord their God, and they built them high places in all their cities from the tower of the watchmen to the fenced city. And they set them up images in groves in every high hill and under every green tree. And there they burnt incense in all the high places, as did the heathen whom the Lord carried away before them, and wrought wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. For they served idols, whereof the Lord had said unto them, Ye shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all the prophets and by all the seers, saying, Turn ye from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Notwithstanding, they would not hear but hardened their necks like to the necks of their fathers that did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and his testimonies which he testified against them. And they followed vanity and became vain and went after the heathen that were round about them, concerning whom the Lord charged them that they should not do like them. And they left all the commandments of the Lord their God and made them molten images, even two calves, and made a grove and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they caused their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire and use divinations and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, to provoke him to anger. 
So after an incredible amount of patience, I mean, this is, this is horrific. We have Israel that is continually disobedient. They're worshiping other gods. They're sacrificing their children to Molech. After continual chances to just be obedient, God has had enough. And we see the results of this in verse 18. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah only. Also, Judah kept not the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the statues of Israel, which they made. And verse 20 is, is, is kind of the ultimate here. And the Lord rejected all the seed of Israel and afflicted them and delivered them into the hands of spoilers until he had cast them out of his sight. Now, I know that that's a pretty big passage, but essentially it sums up all of the Old Testament from Exodus 19. From a historical perspective, Israel doesn't get their act together. Even when God delivers them out of Egypt, they start working their way towards the promised land. Calamity happens because they don't believe God, and so they're wandering the desert for 40 years. Eventually, Joshua leads them into the promised land, and they do all right until they don't do well at all. And then we get the time of the judges where there's these cycles of sin over and over and over again. They eventually ask God for a king, and they get Saul. Then we get David, and that's pretty good. But right after David and then Solomon, the kingdom splits in two. Uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, is pretty wicked, and the southern kingdom, Judah, is kind of okay, but mostly not. And then eventually both of these two kingdoms get taken into captivity. They eventually make it back, but nowhere near the prominence or power that they had. God is silent for 400 years, and then we get Jesus on the scene. So there's just a whole bunch that essentially happens in this particular dispensation. Now, speaking of Jesus, there's one thing that we need to point out as we kind of wrap up our look at the law, and this is in reference to the Gospels. The thing that we need to remember is that the dispensation of the law does not end until the death of Christ, until his death. That's when the dispensation of the law ends. The sacrificial system is in place while Jesus is on the earth, and through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, he offers himself as the only true sacrifice that could satisfy God's wrath eternally. Now, in order for us to see the evidence of this, we take a look at Hebrews chapter 9. In verse 14, it says this, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. So this new testament that Jesus establishes goes into effect upon his death. And that is the point at which a new dispensation comes into place. And man, I praise the Lord for this dispensation. It's the one that you and I are both in and the one that we're going to be taking a look at. Now, before we jump into the sixth dispensation, I think it's important to talk about some of the parameters around how we get from the law over to the next dispensation, the sixth dispensation, that of grace. And we can't do that without talking about, first, the book of Acts. Now, this is going to be pretty key for us today, but one of the things that I want to make sure that you take away from today's podcast is the book of Acts is a book of transitions. And if we don't understand this, we're going to get off into wonky town, which is kind of like funky town, but 
for heresy, I guess? I don't know. We're going to get messed up with our theology. The book of Acts explains how we get from the practices and customs of the nation of Israel to the practices and customs of the New Testament church. And without the book of Acts, we're kind of lost as to how Christianity was formed. So in order to better illustrate this transition, I think we should look at a couple of examples. And one of the ones, the most obvious ones, is what happens at the day of Pentecost. Now, if we were to read in Acts 2, and we've got more things to talk about later on in Acts, so I'll give you the paraphrase version for now. But the Holy Spirit descends from heaven and indwells believers, which is amazing. God, his Holy Spirit, is now living inside of us. Now, it's important to note that this is a new thing and illustrates this transition because this was not the case in the previous dispensation, that of the law. Writing in Psalm 51.11, listen to what David says. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Because in the dispensation that David lived, the Holy Spirit would rest upon believers, but never dwelt inside of believers. And this is, again, a great illustration that something something different, something something new is happening in the book of Acts. We see examples of this if we take a look at how the book of Acts is structured. If we were to start reading and we read chapters 1 through 12, we would see a heavy focus on the ministry of Peter. But by the time we get to Acts 13, all the way through the end of the book, it's a heavy focus on the ministry of Paul. And if we were to read the book of Acts, we'd discover that Peter is very much an apostle to the Jews, but Paul is very much an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, there are lots of other examples of this that we could look at, but there's actually one that I want to focus on, and this is the story of the conversion of Cornelius. And we find this in Acts 10. Cornelius is a Gentile man, and he has a vision from the Lord instructing him to send men to a city called Joppa to meet Peter. And as the men that Cornelius sent are approaching, Peter actually has a vision from the Lord where he is instructed to eat food that Jews were told were ceremonially unclean. In Acts chapter 10, verse 9, it says this, On the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh unto the city, Peter went up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And he became very hungry and would have eaten, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance. And saw heaven open, and a certain vessel descending unto him, as it had been a great sheet, knit at the four corners and lit down to the earth wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts, and creeping things, and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill, and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spake unto him again the second time, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. This was done thrice, and the vessel was received up again, into heaven. So it's very clear here that Peter has an expectation of certain foods that he is and is not to eat, and what he's following is the Mosaic law. Peter's only mistake here is saying, like, no to God. Like, don't, guys, don't say no to God. But I mean, I think we can understand where his confusion is coming from. At one moment, these animals are are off limits to him, and now God's saying, hey man, shrimp's on the menu. You can You can do this thing now, right? So Peter's a little bit confused, but let's continue reading the story. 
Now while Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. The dudes that Cornelius sent, they show up and called and asked whether Simon, which was surnamed Peter, was lodged there. While Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said unto him, Behold, three men seek thee. Arise therefore and get thee down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. So if we fast forward a little bit in the story, Peter's going to arrive at Cornelius' house, and it says this. And the morrow, after they entered into Caesarea, and Cornelius waited for them, and had called together his kinsmen and near friends, and as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter took him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many that were come together. And verse 28 is key. Listen to what it says here. And he said unto them, Ye know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation. But God hath showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. In verse 34, Peter goes on to say, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. And as Peter continues to talk in verse 44, we read, While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on them which heard the word, and they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit. So a logical question might be, what has happened that has precipitated this change? And what we ultimately find out is that it's Israel's constant rejection of their Messiah that changes the focus from the Jews to the Gentiles. And the evidence of this is how the book of Acts closes. Paul is trying to convince the Jews of the deity of Jesus Christ, their Messiah. And in chapter 28, verse 25, it says this, And when they agreed not among themselves, they departed after that Paul had spoken one word, well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet unto our fathers, saying, Go unto this people, and say, Hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and not perceive. For the heart of this people is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing. And their eyes have they closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and that they will hear it. And so after the book of Acts, what is the next book? Well, it's the book of Romans, and Romans is a masterpiece. It's It's been called the, the constitution of the Christian faith. And what does it lay out? It lays out how Christians should be Christians. All the major doctrines that we see are found here. Well, imagine if we took the book of Acts out of the Bible we go straight from John right into Romans and everybody's confused. So this book is incredibly key for us understanding how it is that we get from the law to the dispensation of grace. So we're going to be focused on the church age, the age of grace. But there are a couple of things that we need to establish first. And one of the first things that we need to talk about is that this church age was a mystery in times past. 
Now, if you take a look at the book of Ephesians chapter 3, it lays this out. Paul, in writing, is trying to convey what it is that happened with the unveiling of this mystery, the unveiling of the church age. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, he tells that he is a minister of the dispensation of the age of grace. And in verses 3 and 4, he lets it be known that this was a mystery before, but it was given to him by revelation. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, it says this, speaking of this mystery of the church age, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Now, another thing that we need to understand about the church age is that it was always a part of God's plan. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9, it continues, And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. Now, this mystery that was revealed to Paul that was always a part of God's plan was actually hidden, again, by the fact that it was a mystery, to the writers of the Old Testament. Consider for a moment Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. So this is a very famous passage talking about the coming of the Messiah, but take a look at how it is phrased. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end, upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So we, as members of the church and the church age have this incredible viewpoint that the Old Testament writers didn't have. When we look at verse 6, we see very clearly, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, his first coming, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, second coming. So the colon here that we see kind of acts as a separator of over 2,000 years, and it's in this colon that we find the church age, the period of time in between Christ's first coming and his second coming. So this mystery, this church age that wasn't revealed to the Old Testament writers that's been made clear to Paul by revelation that God is going to bring in the Gentiles, of course, leads to the question, what happens to the Jews? It's important to note that in the church age, as far as God's dealing with the nation of Israel, he's temporarily set them aside. And we see this in Romans chapter 9 through 11. In Romans 11, 25, it says this, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. So even though the nation of Israel has been set aside, it isn't permanent. It's temporary. And Paul also makes this clear. Again, in Romans chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, it says this, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. 
So we see here, Paul is abundantly clear. He wants you, me, everybody to know that although the nation of Israel has been temporarily set aside to allow this age of grace to come in, that he's not done with Israel, not not by a long shot. And this is one of the key reasons why a distinctive of dispensationalism is a separation between the church and Israel. God is one who is always going to keep his promises, and he made a promise to the nation of Israel, and he is going to keep that promise. So as Paul states, God's not done with Israel. Now, in the meantime, while we're looking at this age of grace, let's talk about a couple of things that we need to know. And this is going to be kind of in the same pattern that we've seen with all of the other dispensations. But before we get into that, one of the things that we need to know is if if we were in a mall and we need to know where we're at, we would go and look at a map. Did I? Okay, pause for the cause. If you don't know what a mall is, I don't blame you because I'm getting older and was running around in the 90s. But but a mall used to be a place where you'd go, where all these stores and food courts and, you know, Google it. It'll, 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 it'll be way better if you Google it. But if you were to go into a mall and you need to know what store to get to, there were these maps that you could find periodically. And on that map, it always said, you are here with like a little X or a circle or some other graphic. And so you knew where you were in relationship to all the other stores that are around you. It's important to note that as it relates to the dispensations, you and I, believers in Jesus Christ, have that X on the map firmly in the dispensation of grace. We are here. Now, what that means is that we are going to view the map. We're going to view the Bible in light of our perspective of where we are at. What we're not going to do is take a look at other dispensations and draw our X on that side of the map. We are in the grace mall section, I guess, to kind of continue on with this analogy. So this is going to be very, very important. Now, as it relates to the location scripturally of the age of grace, we find this in Acts 2, of course, the day of Pentecost, all the way up to the second coming of Christ. And if you haven't guessed by now, the chief steward of this dispensation is Paul as one of the revealers of the age of grace, but also the church itself. In Ephesians 3, 2, it says, If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you word. So again, we have this identification of the chief steward. Now, the task of the steward, again, in every single dispensation, there is a steward. There is a task that the steward is given. The, 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 the task in this dispensation is simply to believe on Jesus Christ, to preach the gospel, and to walk with God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says, Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. So let's stop here for a second. You, believer in Jesus Christ, are a steward of the mysteries of Christ. You are responsible for taking the knowledge that you have, the knowledge of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and preaching it, proclaiming it with everything you have across the entire globe. This is why our Bible Institute is focused on equipping you with the knowledge that you need in order to be a faithful minister. Because again, listen to the verse. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. 
we must endeavor to faithfully preach the word of God that's been delivered unto us. Now, of course, we know that the pattern that we see in dispensationalism is that the steward that is given the task eventually fails in their stewardship. And this is the same for the church. What we find is that the church falls into apostasy. That is, the church falls away from the historic teachings that have been handed down from Christ through the apostle, from faithful man to faithful man to faithful man. And we see a very clear picture of this, actually, as we take a look at the book of Revelation. Chapters 2 and 3 of this book are Jesus Christ writing to seven historic, actual, real-life churches, but also picture for us seven distinct ages of church history. And in the last age of church history, where we currently find ourselves, this is what Christ says. Revelation 3.16 So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now, there's so much to unpack here as it regards to this failure and what we see here, Jesus Christ saying in Revelation 3.16. But to get more information, man, we got a class for that coming up in LFBI, Daniel and Revelation. It's an eschatology course or a study of end times. You can register right now. It's going to be taught by Pastor Gray Axe. I'm signed up myself for it. I'm super excited about it. So if you're looking for more information regarding what the hey-ho is going to happen <laughs> as everything wraps up in all of, you know, space, time, eternity, then you should probably, should probably sign up for that class. So, of course, after the failure of the church, there is a judgment. The church is removed from the earth, and this is an event called the rapture. Again, Daniel Eschatology is going to talk about that, I'm sure, at length. But in the church being removed from the rapture, they are taken to what's known as the judgment seat of Christ. And a verse to check this out is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now, if we were to continue to read this, we know that this event is called the terror of the Lord. So this is not something to play around with. This is a sober reminder that the church as a whole is going to fail in their dispensation like every other trusted steward has failed in their dispensation. And we are going to be held accountable for what we've done. Now, that could be a bummer, right? That ultimately what we're looking to do as a whole fails. But again, it kind of highlights our need for Christ and our need to understand that Christ, his spirit, his word must empower our ministries, must empower the work that we are doing, because without that, we can't do anything. So hopefully what this does for you is helps you to understand even more just how needful it is that we lean into God and beg him for power in our ministries and in our lives as we endeavor to do the work that he's entrusted us with. So the rapture is the event where believers are removed from the earth. And we find this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 18. And it says this, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. 
and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So what we see here very clearly is that this is the event where believers are caught up in the air. There's a there's a reception in the clouds, so to speak, and then they are immediately taken off to the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the judgment seat of Christ is an event in Scripture where believers are judged for their service, not their salvation. So this doesn't this doesn't determine your eternal destiny, but it does determine how well you served the Lord with your life. We see that in 2 Corinthians 5.10, which says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now, while this event is happening for the church, there's simultaneously an event that's beginning down on the earth, and this is something known as the tribulation. Now, I just want to be super clear. We're going to talk a little bit about the tribulation for context sake, because this is a seven-year period that is between the rapture of the church and the next dispensation that we're taking a look at today, the millennium. But this will be in no way exhaustive as far as talking about this particular event. So this tribulation period is also known as Daniel's 70th week, which you see in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Also the time of Jacob's trouble, which you find in Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 4 through 7. And what's clear from that last title is that this is a time where attention is focused back onto the nation of Israel. We talked about the book of Acts being a transition from Jews to Gentiles, and it kind of happened in a slow, gradual sense, almost like God was God was a DJ, I guess, and he's got a record, one that's Jews and one that's Gentiles, and he's slowly mixing from Jews to Gentiles. Well, when the rapture takes place, God just cuts the record right back. Like he doesn't attempt to mix it at all. It's just a hard cut. And all of a sudden we're listening to Jewish beats again. I think this analogy works. But this is a seven year period that's essentially broken into two halves, two, three and a half year periods. The first half, the tribulation, we see things like the Antichrist come on the scene. He's a man of peace, seemingly, and a treaty is established. There's peace in the Middle East and the Jews are actually able via this treaty to rebuild their temple and everything seems to be going well. But by the time we make it to the back half of the tribulation, the last three and a half years, the Antichrist is actually revealed to be the man of sin. This treaty is broken. This Antichrist turns his back on the nation of Israel. And there is a worldwide campaign to essentially stomp out the Jews. There's fierce persecution such like there's never been before. Now, at the end of that seven-year period, it climaxes with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. And I'm going to read this whole passage, even though it's a little bit long, because it's awesome. So it says this, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, 
King of kings and Lord of lords. And what we see here is that Jesus is coming to battle. He's come to take the kingdom that rightly belongs to him. We find the details of this a little bit further down in verses 19 through 21. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So obviously pretty gruesome, but also the Lord Jesus Christ gets an uncontestable victory. And as a result, we see this in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Satan is bound, and he'll be bound for a thousand literal years. It says this, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. So with Satan bound, we begin the seventh dispensation, the millennium, located in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 15. Now in this dispensation, we find that the chief steward is the nation's. And there are several passages that we could pull, but take a look at Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make him afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. Now, what we find here is that the task of the nations is simply to submit to Jesus Christ and his government. And this is where Jesus is ruling with a rod of iron. There's no choice. This is his government. This is his show. Our job is simply to obey. Now, the task of the steward here is simply to submit to Jesus Christ and his government. There's, there's no talking back. There's no difference of opinion. Jesus said it, that's what everyone must do. In Psalm chapter 72, verses 8 through 11, it says this, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him, all nations shall serve him. I want you all to think about this for a second. Jesus Christ is going to physically, visibly, bodily reign on this earth for a thousand years, and it will be, in every sense of the word, 
a perfect government. Humanity will have everything it needs. It will have the one thing that it needs, Jesus Christ ruling and reigning from a throne. And yet we know that there is a failure. And this is, again, incredible. The fact that after a thousand years of peace throughout the whole world, there is going to be yet another uprising, another rebellion against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Listen in Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 9. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So this is the last stand, Satan's last and final rebellion. And something that we can't miss here is the fact that Satan has literally been bound for a thousand years. He's been subdued. There's no chance that he himself can escape. He's loosed for a little season, and yet he's still as rebellious as ever. This is, this is someone who cannot be redeemed. Satan is an enemy. He's prideful. And even though there's nothing he can do about God ruling and reigning, yet he still goes out to stand against the Lord. And the tragic thing is that there are nations that stand with Satan against the Lord. So after we see that these rebellious folk are defeated, there is a judgment. And this is where we find the great white throne judgment. Praise the Lord, believers in Jesus Christ do not find themselves at this judgment, but simply the unbelieving dead throughout all time. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, it says this, And I saw a great white throne in him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead small and great stand before God and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which are in it and death and hell delivered up the dead which are in them. And they were judged every man according to their works and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death and whosoever was not found written in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. And after this event, the great white throne judgment, we see the establishing of a new heavens and a new earth with a new Jerusalem, and everything is perfect as God intended. Now, the events of those you can read on further in Revelation, but from, from a dispensational standpoint, the millennium doesn't just encompass the thousand years, but continues on in perpetuity. It establishes Christ's kingdom on the earth, the final battle. But then we have perfect peace where we are able to finally be with our Lord and serve him in perfection, to serve him in righteousness. And not because we and ourselves are righteous, but because Christ is our righteousness. And, and this is something that I am looking forward to. So in order to set the stage for what we're about to dive into, I want to take a look at a pretty common illustration. You probably have heard it before, but there may be a few people that haven't. And this is the illustration of a letter that's written to an individual. 
Now, I know that physical letters aren't super popular these days, but but this illustration resonates with me because about 20 years ago, my grandmother wrote me a letter for my 18th birthday slash graduation. Now, one of the neat things about this letter is that my grandmother wrote it on archival paper. She wrote it in pencil first, then she went over it in pen just to make sure that she got everything perfect. So needless to say, this letter is very important to me. Now, if you were to read this letter that was addressed to me, but was written by my grandmother, my grandma Robbie, you would find out some pretty interesting things about her. And this is exactly what I invited my wife to do one day. I I gave her the letter and I let her read it. Now, in the letter, my grandma writes a couple of neat things, a couple of key topics that she's focused on. And the first is just the importance of making memories. And she hosted a lot of family get-togethers and family reunions, oftentimes at her expense. And so she was really adamant about making memories by bringing family together. Now, another thing that she encouraged me to do in this letter is to actually use my talents and gifts to glorify God because she understood that those things could be used to make an eternal impact in the lives and hearts of men and women. One of my favorite parts of the letter is how focused she was on being obedient to the Word of God. And she actually wrote this. It's, it's pretty neat. Obedience is the key that unlocks the door to all of God's promises and rewards. So needless to say, you're getting the picture. My grandma, Robbie, she's a boss. Like She's awesome. Another one of my favorite things about this letter is she actually gave references to all of her favorite Bible verses, like in the entire Bible. So if all that wasn't enough, if I ever want to know what am my grandmother like most about the Bible, well, I have those references. Now, in addition to all this, my grandmother actually sent a check along with that letter, and that was to be used, one, for my graduation party, and two, for some spending money for me when I went to college because she knew that I was going to have a job. I was going to art school, so I was going to be a bum. So she took care of me, and that's really great. That's just... That's just the person that she was. So after my wife gets done reading this letter, there are a couple of logical conclusions that she could come to. So she would be able to see how important family was to my grandmother, and also that my grandmother was obedient to the word of God and called others to do the same. But the one thing that my wife couldn't do is look at me and say, hey, yo, where's my money at? And she couldn't do that for two reasons. One, because that's incredibly rude. Don't just turn to someone and say, where's my money at? Okay, like, that's not a good thing. And the second is that that letter wasn't written to her. That letter was written to me, and it has a very specific application to me that is different than it does to her. So while she can learn neat things about my grandmother, she don't get no money like I did, right? So I hope you see maybe where we're going with this illustration as it relates to three different types of people groups that we see in the Bible. Now, as it relates to these three people groups, I don't want you to take my word for it, but rather let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32, where it says this, Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. So when God is looking at all of humanity, he sees them in these groups, Jews, Gentiles, and the church of God. This is the, the scriptural basis for, for why we see these three people groups. So what we want to do now is just take a little bit of time and explore these three people groups. Now, this won't be exhaustive, but hopefully it'll be helpful. Now, the first people group that we see is the Jews, the nation of Israel. And that's really what all of the Old Testament is about. It's about the formation and the history of the nation of Israel. And there are a couple of of observations that we have, things that we can notice that are specific to this people group. 
The first is that they have a national identity. In Jeremiah 31, 35 through 36, it says this, Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. So what we see here very clearly is the Lord saying, the nation of Israel is going to be a nation, and there's there's nothing that anyone can do about that. Once it's a nation, it will remain a nation. Now, Israel has also been promised a specific land. In Genesis 13, verses 14 and 15, it says this, And the Lord said unto Abram, after that lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art northward, and southward, and eastward, and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. So here we see the nation of Israel is promised an actual, physical, literal piece of land. Now, of course, Abraham has a son, Isaac, who has a son, Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel, has 12 sons, which constitute the 12 tribes of Israel. So from Abraham, the nation will be birthed. We can also see that the nation of Israel is promised a throne and a kingdom. If we take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, we can see some of these elements. In verse 13, it says this, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Later in verse 16, it says this, And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Now, the thing that we can't mistake about these passages is that these are literal promises to the nation of Israel, a very specific people group that is not the Gentiles and not the church. This people group has their own promises that apply specifically to them. The second people group that we see according to 1 Corinthians 10.32 is the Gentiles. And of this group, author and commentator Lewis Sperry Schaefer says this, Quote, the Gentiles are that vast, unnumbered company, excluding the Israelites who have lived on the earth from Adam until now. So again, we see here very clearly Gentiles are not the Jews. They're also not the church. In Romans 15 verses 8 through 12, it says this. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, for this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, Rejoice, ye Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again, Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles trust. So, of course, Romans is a letter written by Paul, who is a Jewish man, but is is saved radically by Jesus Christ. We find that in Acts 9, and he essentially reveals this mystery of the church and the church age, and he is a minister to the Gentiles. The last people group we find is, of course, the church of God, and I want to take a look at a couple of the key distinctions for this people group. Now, just like the previous people groups that we've looked at, the church of God is distinct from both the Jews and the Gentiles. And in the book of Colossians, that's talking about the uniqueness of the church in chapter 3, verse 11, it points this out pretty 
pretty plainly. It says this, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. We can also see that the church is unique and that they are new creatures in Christ, spiritually speaking. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. We can also see in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that those that are in Christ, that are the body of Christ, the church, are predestined to be conformed into Christ's image. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So now that we've spent some time taking a look at these people groups, some of you might be asking, well, why do we do that? What's the importance of it? And it's actually pretty key. And that's because the context of a passage as we're reading it in Scripture can often be addressed by simply asking the question, who is God talking to? Who is he talking to? And we know that scripturally speaking, there's only three groups of people that he could be talking to. So it's incredibly important that we know to which group God is addressing his words. And in fact, if we don't know who God is talking to, then how could we possibly come to a proper interpretation of Scripture? And I want to submit to you that we won't. So to kind of see this in action, maybe bring it to a practical level, I have a weird question to ask you. Are you ready for this one? It's a little odd and morbid. So here we go. When was the last time that you woke up in the morning, poured your coffee, read your Bible, walked outside, slit the throat of an animal, and then praised God for the death? I'm going <laughs> to, I'm just going to say that that didn't happen. That's not going to happen. I'm going to imagine that you've never sacrificed an animal before, but the book of Leviticus tells you all about how to sacrifice you some animals. So why haven't you done it? Well, it's very clear that the book of Leviticus isn't written to us. It's written to Jews. So whereas a Jewish man or woman living in the dispensation of the law would read that book prescriptively, that is a set of instructions that they are to follow, we would read that book principally. That is that we would understand the importance of holiness to God because it took animal sacrifices in order to maintain that holiness. Something had to die and its blood be shed in order to cover sin. When it comes to how we practically walk out our faith as New Testament church age believers, we need to make sure that we are getting prescriptive instructions from the parts of the Bible that are written to us. And that is the book of Romans through the book of Philemon. Those are the letters that are written to church age believers and likewise have doctrine for us, church-age believers, to follow. When you read those letters, you can trust that the instructions that are written to you, you can follow prescriptively and be understanding and interpreting your Bible correctly. I want to tell you just a brief memory of mine. Actually learning about these kingdoms for the first time, I was in Discipleship 2 at, at, at Midtown Baptist Temple. And Eric Phillips was teaching, and I remember that he was going on about the importance of the kingdoms, and guys, I just, I could not care less. I know that's that's not what you're supposed to say, but I just, I didn't understand what the whole purpose was. 
It seemed like a neat study that I was never going to do. And oh, how wrong I was. Understanding the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven is going to be paramount to understanding your entire Bible. Now, here's a principle that I live my life by, and maybe it 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 might help you out. And it's a simple phrase, which is words mean things. Words mean things. And as it turns out, the words heaven and God, they don't mean the same thing. There are two different words. So when we're talking about the words kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, one of the first indications that these two things are different is simply the fact that the words are different. And let's not forget how important words are. If I can call your attention to Psalm 12, 6 and 7, it says this, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So what does this mean? This means that the individual words that God has chosen in the book that he has authored that could have been, I don't know how many millions of miles long, but he but he chose to edit it pretty tightly, that the individual words that he has chosen, they matter. And so with that understanding, let's go ahead and take a few minutes to just compare the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God using the words of the Bible and referencing scripture. So I'm going to give us a working definition of these two kingdoms, and we'll start off with the kingdom of heaven, which we'll define like this. A physical kingdom ruled by Jesus Christ and composed of literal, physical people in a natural, tangible world. Now, another way to help us remember this is that heaven is a place, and the kingdom of heaven, therefore, is physical in nature. Now, one thing that we have to take note of, and this is incredibly important, is that the phrase kingdom of heaven in your King James Bible is found 33 times in 32 verses exclusively in the book of Matthew. Now, some of you may be asking, why is that important that it that it's found just in the book of Matthew? Well, each of the four Gospels gives us a slightly different viewpoint at Jesus Christ, his life and his work, but it's also written for slightly different audiences. And the Gospel of Matthew is written for a Jewish audience to present Christ as the Messiah, the King of the Jews. So simply by the placement of the phrase kingdom of heaven, this should give us insight as to whom this particular kingdom applies. Now to further see this in action, let's go ahead and take a look at the book of Acts, the very first chapter and the first seven verses, which say this. The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to both do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostle whom he had chosen. Now listen to this, verse 3, to whom he also showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now this is very, very important. Jesus is teaching his disciples for forty days and he's speaking to them about the kingdom of God very specific. In verse 4, it continues, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Again, listen very carefully in verse 6. 
When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And listen to the response. And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Now, it would be very, very easy for us to simply think that after 40 days of being taught by the resurrected Savior that, oh man, these disciples are just being big idiots again and just not listening. That's not the case at all. Jesus taught about the kingdom of God, but they know very specifically what they're asking. They're asking about restoring the kingdom to Israel, which is the kingdom of heaven. And the response that Jesus gives is it's not time for them to know. And we know from a dispensational perspective, that's because Jesus is still wanting to make a valid offer of the kingdom of heaven to the nation of Israel through Stephen in chapter 7. So here we see scriptural evidence. The disciples are very aware of the differences between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. They're not dummies. They know exactly what they were taught, and they also know exactly what they were asking. If we were to continue to look at different scriptural descriptions of the kingdom of heaven, one of the most definitive ones can be found in Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence and the violent take it by force. And the reason why the kingdom of heaven can be described this way is because it is an actual, literal, physical place that has and will be contested for as long as God made a specific promise to a specific people. So let's take a little bit of time to compare that with the kingdom of God. Again, I have a working definition, which is this. A spiritual kingdom ruled by Jesus Christ and is composed of spiritual beings made in the image of God. So another way to remember this very easily for your brain, especially if this is a new concept, is that God is a spirit and the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. Now, there are a couple of key things that we can see simply by observing scriptural depictions of the kingdom of God. We'll start in Romans 4.17. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, something physical, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. It is intangible. 1 Corinthians 15.50 says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood, again physical, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Luke 17, 20 through 21 says, And when he demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. You're not going to see it with your eyes. Neither shall they say, Lo, here, or lo, there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. John 3 Verse 3 says, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, a spiritual birth, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So over and over and over again, we see that this is not a physical kingdom. It's not a piece of land. It's not exclusively promised to the nation of Israel, but rather it's intangible. It's in you and it's entered into by a spiritual birth. This cannot be the same as the kingdom of heaven. This has to be something different. 
So how do we make this practical? Why should we make such a big deal about a distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? Well, partly we talked about God does, which, guys, that should be reason enough. <laughs> if God thinks that two things aren't the same, well, doggone it, they're not the same, all right? So that's the first one, because God said so. But the second is is pretty important as well. And just a quick reminder, remember that for those of us living in the church age, Paul is our apostle. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. He's the one that let know what the mystery of the church age was. And I want you to listen to what it says about Paul in Acts chapter 28, verses 30 through 31. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. If you are a blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ and Paul is your apostle and Paul is preaching the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of heaven, then what kingdom do you think that you ought to be preaching? Those that call themselves Christians have been called to preach about the spiritual kingdom of God, the one that is entered into by a spiritual birth, namely believing on the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a propitiation for our sin. We're going to take a look at three cases for a literal interpretation of Scripture, and then we'll just take a look at some Scripture and see what Scripture says. First, we have to talk about the purpose of language, and we need to understand that language was given by God for the purposes of communication. God wants us to know Him. Now, in his book, Dispensationalism, Charles Ryrie writes the following, God, being all-wise and all-loving, originated sufficient language to convey all that was in his heart to tell mankind. Furthermore, it must also follow that he would use language and expect people to understand it in its literal, normal, and plain sense. The scriptures, then, cannot be regarded as an illusion of some special use of language so that in the interpretation of these scriptures, some deeper meaning of the words must be sought. So God isn't trying to purposely speak cryptically to us. He wants to be understood, and he's using language in the normal, literal way in which we understand language to do so. Secondly, we can take a look at the manner in which prophecy is fulfilled. So, for example, let's take the prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ, his first coming, the place and nature of his birth, details about his ministry, his death, his burial, and his resurrection were all fulfilled literally. There's no allegory there. What prophecy is proclaiming comes to pass in a literal sense. Thirdly, literality allows for objectivity in interpretation. Again, listen to Charles Ryrie in his book, Dispensationalism. To try to see meaning other than the normal one would result in as many interpretations as there are people interpreting. Look, guys, anyone who is writing a book, making a movie, telling a narrative of any sort has an intended purpose in mind, and God is no different. The way in which he wants us to interpret his book is from a literal perspective. 
Now, with all this in mind, there are several different types of language that are used in the Bible, and we're going to take a look at some figurative language, some symbolic language, and some literal language to compare and contrast them all. First, let's take a look at some figurative language. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 10 says this, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation. Now, let's, let's pause there for a second. Now, I don't have my PhD, and I went to art school, so that says a lot about me, but, but I don't think I have the ability to harden my physical heart. So clearly, this phrase needs to be interpreted in a specific way. This is figurative language. So how is it that we interpret things like this? Well, let's keep reading. Again, picking up from verse 8. Harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation, in the wilderness. This should key us into the fact that Scripture wants us to remember Israel's trials in the wilderness when they provoked the Lord to anger. Verse 9 continues, When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years, wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. The context of the passage makes the interpretation crystal clear. The hardening of Israel's hearts is about their rejection of God's word and their disbelief in God. So the next type of language we'll take a look at is symbolic language. And man, if we're going to go there, there's a really good book to do it in. We're going to look at the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation is often looked at as a, as a very cryptic book. But please keep in mind that the purpose of Revelation is the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just as a side note, if you're curious about Revelation, we got a book for that. Greg Acts, pastor and professor at the Living Faith Bible Institute, has written a new book called Revelation Made Simple. So if that sounds like something that might interest you, I'd encourage you to visit lffellowship.com where you can purchase that book. But in relation to our conversation today, let's look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. The verse continues to talk about John's looking at the glorified Jesus Christ. And he's got these these golden candlesticks. Later on in verse 16, it says, and he had in his right hand seven stars. Now, if we didn't read any further, then the seven golden candlesticks and the seven stars they would just be a forever mystery. What do those things mean? I don't know. Uh, What do you think? That's probably not the best way to interpret your Bible and set the course for your life. Probably a better way is just to keep, keep reading the book. Later on in the same chapter, verse 20, it says, The mystery of the seven stars without saw in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and... The seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So even though this language is symbolic, it's not indecipherable. We simply need to keep reading God's word and God will show us the clear meaning. We could do the same thing in several other places. In chapter 2 of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar has a really crazy dream and Daniel not only recalls the dream, but interprets it and makes the meaning clear. Again, we want to remember that God wants us to know his word. The last type of language that we see is literal language, like literal, not figurative, 
Not symbolic, but literal. And I want to take you to a passage you may be familiar with it. If you're not really good with Bible memorization and you want to get an easy win under your belt, start here. Now, we're using this as an example because it's really short, there's not a lot of words, and this is a really hard verse to misinterpret. John 11.35 says this, Jesus wept. Here's what I'm going to suggest to you. I'm going to suggest that if you read John 11.35 and what you got from it is that Jesus, on a random Saturday, went go-karting with his friend and then had a really cool game of paintball. If you got that from John 11.35, go home, man. (laughs) Do something else with your life, bro. I don't know, man. But Jesus wept. That's, That's what happened. His friend had died and Jesus wept. That's literal language. It's, it's very, very hard to not understand that. So the thing that I'm, that I'm hoping that you're getting and hoping that you're understanding is that words mean things, and we simply can open up the Bible, assume that what God said is what God meant, keeping things in context, comparing Scripture with Scripture, and the clear meaning of Scripture becomes evident. When we approach the Bible from a literal standpoint, when we just, when we just believe that God is using the words to convey things very simply, then anybody with the Bible can hear from the king of the universe. And that's just cool. So we're going to be taking a look at covenant theology. We first want to define what that word covenant is. And I've got just a couple of working definitions here. And the first is this. An agreement with complete terms set by the initiating party and affirmed by the one entering into it. Or a divine promise that forms the ground of God's future dealing with mankind. Now, if we were to open up the Bible and start looking for this type of definition worked out in Scripture, we would find a couple of covenants. And and we don't have time to take a look at all of them today, but I think it's pertinent to take a look at the first one we see known as the Noahic Covenant. Now, one of the things that we want to keep in mind as we are studying Scripture is that oftentimes the first time that a word appears, it tends to set the stage for how that word will continue to be used throughout Scripture. And the first time we see the word covenant is in Genesis chapter 6, verse 18, where God is talking to Noah. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons, and thy wife, and thy sons' wives with thee. Now, of course, we know this as the global flood where all but Noah's family perishes. After the events of the flood, we see this covenant expounded upon and reaffirmed by God in Genesis chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. And I behold... I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you and with every living creature that is with you of the fowl, of the cattle, and of every beast of the earth with you from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. 
I do set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a token of a covenant between me and the earth, and it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. So now that we've seen a covenant defined biblically, let's take a look at covenant theology, and let's define that as well. Now, covenant theology is also known as Reformed theology, and a working definition would be this, a system of theology based on covenants that act as the governing categories for understanding the entire Bible. Famous Reformed theologian R.C. Sproul says this about covenant or Reformed theology. It sees the structure or format of covenant in the Bible as being a crucial element in which the whole plan of redemption works out and becomes kind of a key to understanding and interpreting the whole of Scripture. And because of that, Reformed theology stresses this central motif of covenant as the framework in which redemption is carried out. So in covenant theology, there are generally accepted to be two or three covenants that are ascribed to, and we're going to list them out here. The first being the covenant of redemption. Now, this covenant is an interesting one because it's not a covenant where God is making an agreement with man, but where God is making an agreement with himself, with the Trinity, with the Godhead, in eternity past. And that agreement that the Godhead makes with itself in eternity past is that sinners will be saved through the sacrifice of Christ. Again, quoting R.C. Sproul, he says, The whole point of the covenant of redemption is to show the complete unity and agreement in the Godhead itself in all eternity in respect to the plan of salvation. Now, the second covenant is the covenant of works. Now, this is a covenant, an agreement with God and man. It's an agreement between God and Adam, and by extension, all of mankind, in which his obedience results in life and disobedience results in death. Again, R.C. Sproul, the covenant of works in Reformed theology refers to the initial covenant that God makes with Adam and Eve in paradise. Now, if you've read your Bible at all, you know that Adam does not stay in the garden because of sin that enters through his disobedience, and that Adam's sin causes him to fail in this covenantal relationship, requiring that another covenant be established. This other covenant, this third covenant, is the covenant of grace. And this is an agreement between God and mankind in which God promises salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Covenant theologian Louis Burkhoff calls the covenant of grace, quote, that gracious agreement between the offended God and the offending but elect sinner in which God promises salvation through faith in Christ and the sinner accepts this believingly, promising a life of faith and obedience. 
So one thing that we definitely want to take note of is the timeline of these covenants, because it's going to be key to help us understand why we're not going to ascribe to this position. The first is the covenant of redemption, which has happened at some point in eternity past. And so we'll just kind of call that a wash for now. The second covenant, the covenant of works, is established with Adam. But notice, the third covenant, the covenant of grace, is established immediately after Adam's fall. What this means is that the covenant of grace has actually been in effect since Genesis chapter 3. Now, in a critique of covenant theology... Pastor Alan Shelby of Harvest Baptist Church and one of our professors here at the Living Faith Bible Institute has this to say, Covenant and Reformed theology assumes a covenant of redemption, infers a covenant of works with Adam before the fall that promises eternal life in exchange for obedience, and accepts a covenant of grace providing salvation for fallen humanity. So there's a lot to unpack there, but I think it's only fair that we actually take a look at the proposed biblical evidence of covenant theology. So speaking of the covenant of redemption, that covenant made in eternity past by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost for the salvation of mankind, the Legionnaire Ministries website, which is an R.C. Sproul website, kind of a collection of his teachings, says this, The covenant of redemption is the agreement made between the members of the Trinity in order to bring us salvation. We find allusions to it in several biblical texts. Under this covenant, the Father plans redemption and sends the Son in order to save his people. The Son agrees to be sent to do the work necessary to save the elect, John 10, 17-18, and the Spirit agrees to apply the work of Christ to us, by sealing us unto salvation, Ephesians 1, 13-14. Now, let's be really clear about something. When we are critiquing covenant theology for inferring their biblical covenants, that's not just a claim that we're making as dispensationalists. That's a claim that they're actually stating. Let's rewind for a second and, and take a look at that quote again. The covenant of redemption is the agreement made between the members of the Trinity in order to bring us salvation— we find allusions to it in several biblical texts. So they're being very clear here. We don't find this covenant in biblical texts. We find allusions to it. Now let's take a moment to to look at some of the texts being quoted as the scriptural basis for this covenant of redemption. John 10, 17 through 18 says this, Therefore doth my father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. Ephesians 1, 13-14 says, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Now, in both of these biblical passages, just like R.C. Sproul's website says, I, I can't find a clear covenant of redemption. I don't see that in the passage. Now, I see the word redemption, but that doesn't count because contextually, we're not talking about a covenant of redemption. We're talking about a future event, the purpose of 
us being sealed as believers by the Holy Spirit, sealed until the day of redemption. So now let's take a look at the scriptural basis for the covenant of works. And to do this, we'll quote O.T. Alice, who we looked at last time. Quote, The relationship established in Eden has properly been called the covenant of works. That it promised life as the reward of obedience is not immediately stated, but is made abundantly clear elsewhere, notably in Deuteronomy. So we see similarities here to the last evidences put forth by covenant theologians by saying it's not explicitly stated, but you see it in different places, like in Deuteronomy. And one of the places in which we can look at in Deuteronomy that O.T. Alice refers us to is Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. Let me read that for you now. And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul? So let's put the pieces together here, because the claim is that the covenant of works was established in Eden. So we're talking about in Genesis. And yet Deuteronomy expounds upon the covenant of works and and kind of outlines what it is. But note, in Deuteronomy, which is the second giving of the law, it's being given to Israel. And the passage, just in case for some reason you weren't listening, I don't know what you're doing. I mean, it's a podcast. It's all you have to do is listen. But it says, and now Israel It literally calls out this particular people group. And one of the things we've been taking a look at, a distinctive of dispensationalism, is that there are different people groups in Scripture. And one of the keys to understanding how to rightly divide your Bible is simply by asking the question, who is this particular passage written to? Now let's move on to the covenant of grace. Again, looking at O.T. Allen, he says this, This covenant is first set forth cryptically in the words of the Proto-Evangel, which promised Eve ultimate triumph over the enemy of her race. In this covenant, the emphasis is on faith. This is made clear in the wonderful words that are said of Abram, and he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness, to which Paul appeals to show that Abraham was justified by faith and not the works of the law. So again, kind of the same program that we had in the previous two covenants. Again, take a look at that quote. This covenant is set forth cryptically. Cryptically where? Well, in Genesis 3.15. Let's go ahead and read that again so that we have it fresh in our brains. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. So I think cryptically might be the wrong words. I think it's, I think it's an enigma wrapped in a mystery in the eye of a hurricane, because I can't find that covenant anywhere. I just don't see it, guys. If you do, man, let me know. Now, I want to be very clear about something. Just because we don't see the words covenant of works, covenant of redemption, covenant of grace, that, that actually doesn't immediately disqualify those things from being true. Now, to be clear, I don't think that they're true, okay? Again, I'm not seeing it. But The lack of the words there isn't the disqualifying factor. And one of the reasons why we know this is because the word Trinity doesn't appear in your Bible. It's just not there. But the concept of the Trinity is there absolutely. And one of the clearest examples of this we see in 1 John 5, 7 through 8, where it says this, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in the earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these 
three, agree in one. So this is a great example of where we don't necessarily see a particular word, but we actually see the concept. So the word makes sense. The doctrine of the Trinity makes sense because the words of Scripture back up what we are proposing. Similarly, the word dispensationalism doesn't appear in your Bible, but dispensations do. And there's an interesting passage in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 that I think is a great example of a scriptural basis behind dispensationalism. I think it's a great place to end our podcast for today. Listen to what it says here. For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote a four and few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power." Now, what I find interesting here is not only do we see the word dispensation, again, not a requirement, but it's nice when you're making an argument for an entire way in which you're going to interpret the Bible, but that we also see the specific calling out of the dispensation of the age of grace in verse 2, how that this age of grace was not known in other ages or in other dispensations. Remember the age of grace, the church age is, is almost like a parenthetical in between a Jewish dispensation and the law and a Jewish dispensation in the millennium, but also in verse 7 that Paul is the steward of this particular dispensation. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that that does better. That particular passage is a better case for dispensationalism than the implied, inferred, cryptic evidences put forth by some of the folks that we've looked at today. So we'll be taking a look at some Bible interpretation or hermeneutics from a covenant theology perspective, and we're going to focus on the doctrine of salvation. Now, this obviously isn't going to be exhaustive. We're not going to go through every single topic that we would maybe differ on, although we did do some of that in a previous podcast looking at dispensational distinctives. So check that out if you have time. But in the sake of time, we want to make sure that we focus and can actually maybe complete the series before, I don't know, Jesus comes back. So in order to set the groundwork for what we're going to look at today, we need to review the definition from a covenant theologian perspective of the covenant of grace. Now, in order to do this, we're going to go ahead and quote O.T. Alice. We've quoted him before, but we're going to use this quote again because it's really succinct. It helps us to understand what the covenant of grace is from their perspective. So, O.T. Alice says this, This covenant is first set forth cryptically in the words of the Proto-Evangel, or Genesis 3.15, which promised Eve ultimate triumph over the enemy of her race. In this covenant, the emphasis is on faith. This is made clear in the wonderful words that are said of Abram, and he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. To which Paul appeals to show that Abraham was justified by faith and not the works of the law. So according to covenant theology, this covenant of grace is instituted after the covenant of works and is in place from immediately after Adam's fall until now. 
So with that understanding, let's go ahead and take a look at the doctrine of grace as R.C. Sproul, a famous covenant theologian, expresses it. Now, this is, there's a lot going on here in this quote, and that's good, but we're going to read it in its entirety and then take the rest of the episode to break it down and compare scripture to scripture to see where we end up. Here's the quote. There are professing Christians today who believe that there is a fundamental difference in how God saved people in the Old Testament and how people are saved now or after the New Testament. That, despite Paul's laboring the point in the third, fourth, and fifth chapter of Romans using Abraham as his illustration, that salvation was accomplished in the Old Testament by grace just as it is in the New Testament, and that Abraham was justified not by the works of the law but by faith in the promised Messiah. The difference is the difference between promise and fulfillment. The people in the Old Testament looked to the future promised Redeemer, put their trust in Him, and they were justified by faith in Him. We look backward to the work that has been accomplished by the Savior. We put our trust in Him, and salvation is basically the same now as it was then. Now, if I was a superhero named Spider-Man, well, then my spider sense would be tingling because something ain't quite right. So... There's a lot to break down here. Let's do it systematically, and most importantly, let's actually compare it with Scripture. Let's see what it says. And in order to do this, let's actually start by taking a look at Romans. This is where Sproul is saying that this is coming from. So let's take a look at Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, maybe 5. Let's go. What shall we say then that Abraham our father is pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that work is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now if we had only heard part of Sproul's argument, we probably would have agreed with him. Abraham is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in God. Now, the question here is that we know Abraham believed God, but what did he believe God for? And we can't know that unless we go back to hear a little bit more about the original story in Genesis chapter 15. So let's read the passage that Romans, so the author Paul and Sproul essentially is referring to. Genesis 15, 1 through 6 says this, After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he, this is Abraham, believed in the Lord. And he, this is the Lord, counted it to him for righteousness. So here we see very clearly exactly what Abraham is believing God for. God tells Abraham that he is going to have a natural born heir and that he will be the father of many nations and Abraham believes God. He takes God at his word. 
So if we take a look now back at Romans chapter 4, let's just finish it out because, of course, Scripture is always going to agree with Scripture. So Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 22 says this, Speaking of Abraham, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. Again, we just saw that in Genesis chapter 15. Verse 19 says this, And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. So after reading those verses, there are two things that we should realize. And the first is that Abraham is dope. This dude is a boss, and there's a reason why he is so esteemed in Scripture. But the second thing is this. Abraham did not believe on the name Jesus Christ and in his atoning death in order to obtain his salvation. And the reason why is because the words don't say that thing. Now, something else that will be of particular interest is if we just finish reading chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. Let's go ahead and do that now. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Here's the deal, guys. In these few verses, it makes a contrast, a contrast in what it is that Abraham was believing for and what it is that we are believing for. Abraham was believing in the promise of a son and being a father of many nations. And that belief meant that God accounted that faith in God's word to Abraham for righteousness. We are believing on Jesus Christ's atoning death, his burial, his resurrection for our sins, And then God accounts that to us for righteousness. It's super important to remember to keep all of the Bible in context. And Ephesians 2, 89 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Grace through faith is always how God saves people. But how God dispenses that grace is different based on the dispensation. Abraham didn't believe in Jesus Christ, and yet his faith was accounted for righteousness. I don't have any misguided thoughts that I'm going to be the father of many nations. At least, I hope not. Like, that's too many kids. My wife would kill me. But I did believe in Jesus Christ for my salvation, and God accounted that to me for righteousness. You know, Because we made a Spider-Man reference earlier, which, by the way, is, I think, the first official nerd reference that we've made here in this podcast. And I'm a huge dork, so I don't know how that happened. But, uh, but yeah, that's the first one. But anyways, I'm reminded of the movie Spider-Man, like the original Spider-Man that came out 20 years ago, starring Tobey Maguire as the second best Spider-Man in not the third best Spider-Man movie. But we'll get into that later. But anyways... I remember the scene in which Peter Parker turns into Spider-Man. He gets bit by the radioactive spider. He wakes up and he puts on his glasses, but his glasses are all blurry. He can't see anything. He takes them off and he sees just fine. 
I think that covenant theology in a lot of ways is like those glasses that Peter Parker is putting on. When he does that, it actually allows him to see less clearly. And as always, when we're talking about these things, I want to make a clear point that I'm not being critical of individuals, but these individuals themselves in explaining covenant theology have said, oh yeah, it's cryptic, it's not really clear, it's kind of implied. I don't have anything against Otialis or R.C. Sproul or anyone who would subscribe to covenant theology. I just don't want to wear Peter Parker's old glasses if I can see just clearly without him because I'm Spider-Man. So in regards to the origins of progressive dispensationalism, we actually see that that label applied in the 1990s, around 91, by proponents Daryl Bach of Dallas Theological Seminary and Craig Bleising, both theologians. And one thing to understand is that both Bach and Bleising are looking at progressive dispensationalism as a modified, a revised, a continuation of classic dispensationalism. So they're looking at what men like Ryrie, what men like Schofield have laid out, and they're looking to evolve it, to continue in that tradition, a new form of dispensationalism. Now, one of the things that I think would be helpful is for us to land on a definition of progressive dispensationalism so that we can have a better understanding of how we should look at this particular theological construct. And ideally, we would do this via the definition given to us by a progressive dispensationalist. But here's actually where we find a little bit of a problem, is that progressive dispensationalists, major proponents of it, actually haven't landed on a singular definition. They note that there are patterns that will make one more or less dispensational, but it's actually kind of hard to find someone like Bach or someone like Bleising say succinctly, here's what progressive dispensationalism actually is. So in order for us to have a better understanding of it, we're going to use someone who's been incredibly helpful in the study, whether you know it or not, Charles Ryrie and his book Dispensationalism, in order to compare normative or classic dispensationalism and its distinctives with what Ryrie identifies as the distinctives of progressive dispensationalism. So first up, we'll take a look at classic dispensationalism, and the distinctives are three. The first is going to be a literal interpretation of Scripture. Of course, this means that words mean things, and that we should take the Bible literally unless it's clear that we should not take the Bible literally. And we've taken a look at this in detail in previous podcasts. So if you want more information about this distinctive or really any of the distinctives of dispensationalism, go back and take a listen to those earlier podcasts. The second distinction, of course, is going to be one between Israel and the church, that these are, in fact, two distinct people groups. Israel is not the church, and the church is not Israel. And therefore, God has different plans and different promises to each of these two groups. The third has to do with the purpose of God, which from a classic dispensational perspective is the glorification of himself. And this helps us to understand the theme of the Bible, which is the kingdom that Christ will inherit and rule. Now let's compare those with the distinctives of progressive dispensationalism, the first being a complementary hermeneutic. Now, 
progressive dispensationalists will say that this is in addition to a literal hermeneutic, and so it's it's kind of a mixture between the two. But simply stated, the New Testament makes complementary changes to the Old Testament without leaving those promises. The second key distinctive is going to be the nature and timing of the Davidic covenant. And this is something that you'll also hear referred to as already, not yet. And again, we'll expound upon this in a future episode. But simply put, it's the belief that the Davidic covenant was inaugurated at Christ's ascension, but it will actually be fulfilled during the millennium and his second coming. So it kind of already happened, but also not yet. And the third distinctive is going to be related to the purpose of God, which is the salvation of sinners. So here we find that the theme of the Bible is redemption. So now that we've taken a look at some of the distinctives and kind of better understand them, let's actually take a look at the dispensations that progressive dispensationalists identify. And there are four rather than seven. The first is going to be patriarchal. And this is from creation all the way to Sinai. So what that means is that there's no distinction between a pre-fall and a post-fall dispensation. And that actually, this patriarchal dispensation, according to progressive dispensationalists, would cover the classic dispensations of innocence, conscience, human government, and patriarchs. So that's like, that's like a whole lot of things. Rolled up into one dispensation. The second is the Mosaic dispensation, which happens from Sinai all the way to the ascension of Christ. So that's all of the law, and according to classic dispensationalists, even some of the dispensation of grace. Next is the ecclesial dispensation, which goes from the ascension to the second coming. And this is most aligned with what classic dispensationalists would know as the age of grace. There's there's not too much change there. Now, the fourth is Zionic, which is kind of broken into two parts. The first being the millennium, and the second being the eternal state. So according to both Bach and Bleising, they would say, quote, the millennium works as a step towards the fulfillment of the everlasting promises. So so these two kind of work in harmony. One Zionic dispensation, but broken down into two parts. So, so far, if we're paying attention, it seems like that progressive dispensationalists and classic dispensationalists have in common the word dispensation. Like, there, there's quite a few differences between classic dispensationalism and the tenets and the key distinctives of it, and progressive dispensationalism, even though they share the same name. And Charles Ryrie has some interesting things to say about how progressive dispensationalists see the Bible. He says this, quote, Progressives do not see the church as completely distinct from Israel as normative dispensationalists have maintained. Neither do they consider the mystery concept of the church to mean that the church was not revealed in the Old Testament only, that it was unrealized. A corollary of this new view erases the idea of the two purposes of God, one for the church and one for Israel. So I want you to think about this for a second. What other theological construct have have we taken a look at 
that doesn't see a distinction between the church and Israel, maybe sees them as kind of one people group, and subsequently has a different eternal purpose of God. If you're thinking covenant theology, I think you're thinking correctly. And what's interesting is the similarities between progressive dispensationalism and covenant theology, so much so that covenant theologian Vern Poitras, while acknowledging that he doesn't speak for all covenant theologians, says this, quote, provided we are able to treat the question of Israel's relative distinctiveness in the millennium as a minor problem, no substantial areas of disagreement remain, end quote. Now he says this, speaking of the differences between progressive dispensationalism and covenant theology. Now, bringing progressive dispensationalism back and comparing it again against classic dispensationalism, I have a question for you. What makes a pizza? I know, guys, it's weird, but just go with me on this one, okay? What makes a pizza? I've got strong opinions. I think the sauce has got to be on point. I think the crust has to be, like, just right. It's got to be crispy enough to be able to, you know, get a slice by itself, but it's also got to be just like a little bit chewy. And it's got to have cheese, but it can't like be swamped. And guys, if you don't if you don't agree with me there, it's okay to be wrong. Don't worry, you can still listen to this podcast. I won't hold it against you. But the crust, the sauce, and the cheese, like if you just have those things, you have a pizza. So now you can add stuff on top of that, right? Like you can add pepperoni. That's a classic, that's a classic topping. You know, you can add you know, bell peppers or olives or or onions or, or Canadian bacon. Those are classic toppings. Now, some of y'all add pineapple. Again, you know, do you. That's fine. Some of y'all add anchovies. I mean, okay, that's whatever. Some of y'all add, like, barbecue chicken. I, I mean, okay, I'm for me, if I wanted barbecue, I'd just go get barbecue. But at some point, at some point, if you... Expect a pizza and you get spaghetti or lasagna and the person says, well, I mean, you know, it's it's a different type of pizza, but it's still got cheese. So like same, same, right? No, not same, same. Spaghetti's good. I'm not a hater on spaghetti. Lasagna, eh, take it or leave it. But at some point, if we change the essentials of a pizza, it's not pizza. And at some point, if we change the essentials of dispensationalism, it's not dispensationalism. So let's start off by talking about this complementary hermeneutic, and we'll go ahead and define it. Now, this will come directly from Bleising and Bach in their book, Dispensationalism and the Church. And here's the definition. The New Testament does introduce change and advance. It does not merely repeat Old Testament revelation. In making complementary additions, however, it does not jettison old promises. The enhancement is not at the expense of the original promise. Old Testament promise has not been replaced. It has been opened up, clarified, expanded, and periodized in the progress of apostolic reflection on Jesus' teaching and actions. So some of what we heard we would align with. For example, Old Testament promises aren't jettisoned. And as a normative dispensationalist or a classic dispensationalist, we would say that if a promise was made to a particular people group like the nation of Israel, then God is going to keep that promise throughout all time. But here's where we get into the problem. 
the progressive dispensationalist says that the New Testament actually changes the Old Testament. And the question that we'd have to ask ourselves is, to what extent? How? And what do you mean? How does it change that? We need an abundance of clarity because that's going to change how it is that we view our Bible. And Ryrie asks the same question when he says, are there limits on the complementary hermeneutic? And if so, how are these limits determined and by whom? So here we see the progressive dispensationalist is trying to have it both ways by saying, yes, we do believe in a literal hermeneutic. Absolutely, yes. There are promises made in the Old Testament that God will keep, but also some things got changed. And the things that have changed are going to become evident when we take a look at how a progressive dispensationalist looks at the Davidic covenant. So I think it would be helpful first to define the Davidic covenant. We'll go to scripture. But again, if you remember from when we were looking at covenant theology, we took a look at a biblical definition of a covenant and more or less it's, it's the terms that manage a relationship. And in the context of biblical covenants, God is setting the terms for how a relationship is going to be managed. So we see the Davidic covenant in second Samuel chapter seven, verses 12 through 13, where it says this. And when thy days be filled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, speaking of David, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In 2 Samuel 23, 5, this is called an everlasting covenant that God is making with David. And in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33, this is again reaffirmed where it says this. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now, as it regards this covenant, this Davidic covenant and how a progressive dispensationalist would view it, this is what we mentioned last time, already, not yet. The belief here is that Christ is already ruling from the throne of David in heaven, but it's a partial fulfillment in that at Christ's ascension, this this promise, this covenant was inaugurated, but it's not yet in that the actual future fulfillment and fullest fulfillment, if you will, will happen at the millennial reign. So another way to think about it is this. It's common or at least maybe it's common. I don't know, man. I think I saw this on a movie or a show once, and that means that it is definitely factual. But when they are christening a new ship, for example, a new seafaring vessel, they'll take a bottle of champagne and smash it up against the ship, and then the ship will go out and sail. I don't know, guys, I don't sail. So in light of this Davidic covenant, it would be like if at Christ's ascension, the champagne bottle smashes up against the ship, but the ship actually doesn't go anywhere. So it's kind of inaugurated, but it's not yet sailing. Now, in order to make this case, both Bach and Bleising put forth the scriptural references of Psalm 132.11 and Acts 2. And let's go ahead and take a look at both of those. First, Psalm 132.11 says this, The Lord has sworn in truth to David, he will not turn from it, of the fruit of thy body will set upon thy throne. And Acts 2, particularly verses 29 through 30, says this, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us unto this day. Therefore, 
being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. So what the progressive dispensationalists will say, and in fact what Bach says, is that Psalm 132.11 is, quote, a crucial linking allusion to Acts 2, that these two are related. Now there are two things that I want to call our attention to. The first is that strong allusions as critical foundational elements of your theology, that actually sounds a lot like covenant theology when we reviewed that just a couple of episodes ago. And the second is this. I don't see it. I don't see it. Maybe, maybe you guys see the connection between these two, but, but I don't. And especially if we read the passage. So let's do that right now. Let's actually just read kind of this whole passage to get some greater context. Starting again from verse 29, it says this, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. The context of Acts chapter 2 in this particular passage is Peter showing to the Jews how Jesus was the Messiah. And the response, of course, as we know, is evidence of that, because the Jews here realize that they did crucify their Lord and ask Well, what do we do now? And so I'm having a really hard time seeing a passage that is essentially a sermon to help the Jews understand that their Messiah, they actually crucified, how this is somehow inaugurating the throne of David. There's just no champagne bottles breaking, at least not that I hear. And this kind of, kind of brings us back to a conclusion that we came to in our last episode about progressive dispensationalism and dispensationalism and how they diverge. Again, we'll defer to Charles Ryrie here when he says this, In general, differences in interpretation and emphases among normative dispensationalists do not change the overall system of dispensationalism, whereas the differences advanced by progressive dispensationalists do form a new and revised system that some, both dispensationalists and non-dispensationalists believe is not dispensationalism anymore. Guys, we've been here for a while, so let's actually just take a look back and then maybe reflect on why it is that we took the journey that we did. So as a quick review, let's just define dispensationalism. So dispensationalism is a systematic method by which the Bible can be interpreted based on clearly observed patterns in scripture. And the pattern that we've been seeing over and over again 
is pretty simple. There is a steward that is given a commission or a responsibility. Now, this is going to happen in every single dispensation, of which there are seven, and we'll, we'll review those here in just a moment. But there's a steward who's given, given a responsibility, and they're given parameters for success in that particular stewardship. But tragedy always strikes. There is a failure of the steward in their given commission. And because of that failure, the steward is judged. The steward is demoted, essentially. And a new steward takes the old steward's place and receives a new commission. So that's what we find in dispensationalism, that pattern of a steward being tasked, being given responsibilities, failing, being judged, and then being replaced. But we've also been seeing that there are seven dispensations or a period of time in which that designated steward has that responsibility of administration. And so the seven classic dispensations that we've been looking at are innocence. Remember, we found that in Genesis chapter one through three. Conscience, which we found in Genesis chapter 4 through 8. Human government, which we found in Genesis chapter 9 through 11. The patriarchs, which we found in Genesis chapter 12 through Exodus 18. The law, which we found in Exodus 19 to the death of Christ. Grace, the one that you are currently in, dear listener, which we found from the death of Christ to the second coming. And the millennium, which we find in Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 15. So if you're looking for a more detailed walkthrough of those, again, for that one rando person that's jumping in right now, go back and listen to basically anything before this, and you'll get all of that information. But what is it that we learn from a dispensational perspective? Well, I've got a couple of things that I think would bear repeating. And the first is this. Mankind is unable to preserve or recover his own righteousness. And we see this over and over again by virtue of the fact that there's always a failure in every single dispensation. Adam was given a perfect world with a perfect commission, and yet he failed. And over and over again, that is the pattern that we see. And that leads us to kind of a, a second thing that we learn from a dispensational perspective, which is humanity's only hope lies in a direct intervention by the Holy Spirit so as to result in a new nature being imparted unto him. Now we see this specifically for you and I. In this dispensation of grace, we are relying on the finished work of Jesus Christ in order to make us righteous. We have no righteousness of our own, and the only way for that to take place is a new spiritual birth, and that is solely a work that God himself alone can do. Humanity is always reliant on God to be justified before him. And without God's intervention, man, we're lost and it's hopeless. Another thing that we learn from a dispensational perspective, well, I'm just going to quote Charles Ryrie where he says this, to the normative dispensationalist, the soteriological or saving program of God is not the only program but one of the means God is using in the total program of glorifying himself. So said in another way, it ain't about you. This whole life that we're living, it's not about you. It's all about the Lord. 
Now, we've been looking at some other perspectives. We spent the last couple of episodes doing that, and we looked at covenant theology, where the main point of what God is doing is the salvation of mankind. And let me not be misunderstood. I am incredibly grateful beyond what I could ever express or or truly understand how it is that Christ loved us so much that he died for us. But the main point of me being brought into the family of God isn't just so I can give high five to my homies. That's not it. It's actually so that I can have fellowship with God, but also that I could serve him, worship him, and glorify him forever. And from a dispensational perspective, we see that the Bible, man, it's got us in it, and that's great. But it's not about us. It's about him. Now, the other thing that that we've been talking about that I think, again, would be good to review is just some of the benefits of a dispensational hermeneutic. And we'll talk about just a couple. The first being this, that the Bible, not our ideas, become the ultimate authority. Again, contrasting this with covenant theology that we looked at, where the evidences of this particular theology, this particular way of looking at and interpreting the Bible, were by proponents, admittedly, nebulous. We quoted O.T. Alice in a previous episode. We'll quote him here again because I think that this is pretty relevant to this discussion. When talking about the covenants that that they are using in order to kind of frame the Bible, he says this, quote, the relationship established in Eden has been properly called the covenant of works. That it promised life as the reward of obedience is not immediately stated. In contrast with dispensationalism, when we just take a look at the Bible, the reason why we land on these on these seven dispensations is because this is a pattern that happens over and over and over again. Now, another benefit of a dispensational hermeneutic is the fact that you have the ability to take the Bible literally rather than allegorize it. And this cannot be overstated how important it is. When we, when we don't believe that all of the Bible is literal until the Bible itself tells you not to take it literal, well, then we're left to kind of, kind of guess, right? We do guesswork or we rely on someone else to tell us that information for us. What happens for people that don't take the Bible literally is they say, oh, well, you know, you can't because it doesn't make sense. All the parts don't add up. Well, those guys should probably take a look at 2 Timothy 2.15 where it says, Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. If we do not know how to rightly divide the word, if we don't see that there are natural divisions in our Bible that, that, that make differences between some parts and other parts, well, then, yeah, we kind of have to go, well, this part don't make sense, so maybe it's symbolic. Maybe he didn't mean the thing that he said when he used the words that actually mean the things. That's, that's kind of where we get to without a dispensational perspective. And this, this kind of leads us into another key point, another benefit of a dispensational hermeneutic is that it empowers anyone and everyone to actually study the Bible. One, because we can read here very clearly that we are commanded to study the Bible, 
But a dispensational hermeneutic assumes a few practical tools by way of some of dispensationalism's distinctives, of which we've talked about at length, but again, bears repeating here. So for example, knowing that there are three people groups in the Bible, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32, where it says, give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. Well, that's super practical. When I'm reading a book, any book in the Bible, one of the first questions I want to ask myself is, who is this written to? And it's going to be one of those three people groups. And depending on the people group that it is written to, well, then that's going to give me a very clear idea of how I should apply that. Should I apply it prescriptively? As in, this is a book written to the church. Oh, and I'm a member of the church. So this is doctrine for me to follow to the letter. Or am I to apply it principally? This book was written to Jews and there's good information about God's character, about who he is, about what he wants, but I'm not to go out and repeat those actions because they're not commands given to me. When we, when we frame the Bible dispensationally, then we just need to open up the word, believe it, believe that words mean things, and then simply do what it says. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of The Postscript and specifically this super episode of the PS Plus uh, where we gathered all of those episodes together. Uh, we pray that you learn some things about dispensational theology and, and why that's a preferable approach to interpreting God's word. But if you've got more questions about how to study the Bible or you want someone to teach you and spend time investing deeper truths from God's word, we'd love for you to visit the Living Faith Bible Institute at lfbi.org. And there you'll learn about who we are as a school, uh, what we offer in terms of, of a program of study and, and also what our statement of faith is. You can learn about who we are and our beliefs, but we would love for you to join us for classes. We offer many, many different classes from introductory level all the way uh, through to deep uh, and intense Bible study. But we offer the school as a supplement to what you're getting in your local church. We wanna come alongside local churches and help in the process of teaching God's word. We love you. We're grateful for your time today, and we hope to see you again next week for another episode of The Postscript. God bless.